0: John 6 verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him the father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and it's written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe." All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? and that I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to see you through the Son. What a joy it is to come to life in you through the life which the Son has granted to us. He is the bread of life. I pray that he would be uplifted and exalted and that we would turn in our trust to him alone through the preaching of the word. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: Good morning. Everybody wide awake? (laughs) I heard a no. We, uh, we humans are amazingly skillful at uh, dodging things that we don't want to deal with. Uh, only certain humans are skilled at things like math or music or athletics, but we're all masters when it comes to dancing around truths that we don't want to acknowledge. In the passage we're considering this, this week and have been in the last couple of weeks, The words that Jesus spoke to this multitude uh, had the effect of smoking out, of bringing out into the open the skillful but fatal mental gymnastics that people go through to avoid dealing with the truth about Christ and about themselves. We've already considered three of those grievous errors by which people miss life and stay dead. We're going to consider just two more today, and that will wrap up our study of this passage. That doesn't mean there aren't others in the passage. But I believe these two are the most critical. The first way that we'll look at today that men miss life and stay dead is by recognizing Jesus as a man but denying Jesus as God. The second is by insisting on a bloodless salvation. First, many recognize Jesus as a man, but they deny Him as God. In this passage alone, if you tally up all of the times in these verses that Jesus refers to Himself as the bread out of heaven, or says that He came down from heaven, or that He was sent from the Father... If you tally all the times that Jesus refers to His heavenly origin, it's more than 20 times. Proportionally, that's every other verse in this passage. That's critically connected to what John declared about Jesus, the Word of God, in his prologue to this Gospel. The very first sentence of the Gospel, he said, the Word was in the beginning with God. And the Word was God. And then he reiterates in the second verse, he was in the beginning with God. That's where he came from. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, Jesus Christ, who had been with God His Father in His heavenly dwelling place from eternity past left that dwelling place to come to earth, to to take on our humanness and to dwell among us. See, Jesus is not from around here. And the assertion that Jesus is from God in every conceivable sense of the word from pervades this whole gospel. Jesus, again, makes that assertion 20 times just in these verses that Bob just read. Over and over, he declares to this multitude that he left his eternal dwelling place to come down out of heaven in order to give real life to men. He says that he's the true bread who came down out of heaven. Now, the Jews understood the significance of his repeated references to his place of origin. Actually, they understood it a lot better than many people today do. In verses 41 and 42, John says that the Jews, therefore, were grumbling about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they, they were saying, now, no, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? If the Jews figured out back in chapter 5 that Jesus was making himself equal with God because he said that God was his own father, how much more do you think that they recognize he's making himself equal with God now, at this point in the, in the interaction? Of course, as we've seen over and over in this gospel, the problem with talking about Jesus behind his back is that he hears you anyway. So Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble behind my back. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I think I said a couple of weeks ago that that I will raise him up on the last day is three times. It's four times in this passage. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's saying to this crowd, in effect, guys, the problem here is not, that my divine identity and my heavenly origin are impossible to believe or even hard to believe. My Father has provided compelling witness to everything that I have said about myself. You've all been taught by my Father. You've all heard from the prophets. And they all testify of me. You've been taught by Him, but you haven't heard Him. And you haven't learned from Him. If you had learned from Him, you would believe in Me. The reason that all that I'm saying causes you so much heartburn is because you're dead. It's because you are spiritually deaf and blind because you're dead. In the very next verse, verse 46, Jesus makes another statement that removes any doubt about what He's claiming about Himself. He says, Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, He has seen the Father. Isn't that what John the Apostle said in his prologue in chapter 1, verse 18? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. See, Jesus is saying the the very same things about Himself that John said about Him in, in that prologue. Even Abraham didn't get to see God the Father in all his glory. Even Moses who asked God to show him his glory didn't get to see him in all his glory. Same applies to David. But Jesus says that he has seen what no other man has seen. He has seen the Father because he is the one who is from the Father. He's the one who came down from heaven. He's the one who eternally shared the very dwelling place of God with God, because as John declares in the first verse of this gospel, the one who was with God in the beginning is God. He is God. A little later in this passage, once this crowd had worked its way to the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus Said to them that unless they eat his body and drink his blood, they have no life in themselves. As we'll see in a moment, that was, that was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. As the grumbling of the crowd approached critical mass, Jesus said to them, does this cause you to stumble? (laughs) What then if you should behold the son of man ascending to where he was before? He's saying, you find it hard to accept that I came from heaven? You find it hard to accept that you have to eat my body and drink my blood to have life? How about if you saw me ascend from this earth to go back where I came from? Back to my eternal dwelling place at the right hand of my Father. Does it sound to you like Jesus is soft-peddling His deity here? I don't think so. He's certainly not yet coming right out and saying what he's going to say in chapter 8 when he declares himself to be, I am. But he's talking a whole lot about his godness, even when he refers to himself as the son of man. (laughs) Three times in this passage, he calls himself the son of man. That's his favorite title in the Gospels with regard to himself. In the Hebrew way of uh, the Jewish way of speaking, anytime you see the phrase the son of, and it's followed by anything other than the name of the man's father, what it means in effect is one who is associated with or uh, characterized by whatever follows. So the sons of disobedience are people, men who are characterized by disobedience. The sons of thunder, which was the name Jesus gave to James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, means men who are characterized by thunder. Now, I don't know if he was referring to the strength of their character or the noise that they made, but you you get the the drift of that, that phrase, son of. The title, the son of man, pointed to Jesus' humanness. It was a declaration that he is indeed man. But to the Jews in the crowd, that title rightly signified much, much more. All humans are sons and daughters of men in the Bible. But Jesus is the son of man in an entirely unique sense that applies only to him. At the beginning of this passage in John 6, 27, Jesus said to the multitude, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the the Son of Man shall give to you. For on Him the Father, God, has set His seal. What does that mean that God the Father has set His seal on the Son of Man? In Genesis 41... Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said to Joseph, the son of Jacob, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put the gold necklace around his neck, and he had him ride in his second chariot, and the people proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And Pharaoh set him over all the land of Egypt. You know what was on that signet ring that, pharaoh put on joseph's hand his seal the emblem that represented pharaoh's authority as king he gave that ring to joseph that's a picture of what god the father did in eternity past with god the son in daniel 7 the prophet daniel writes about a vision That God revealed to him in which Daniel got to witness an interaction between God the Father, the one called the Ancient of Days, and another one who was like a son of man. Listen as I read these couple of verses from Daniel 7. Daniel's the one speaking. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." that Son of Man isn't just another man. He's the one on whom God the Father in eternity past set His seal. That Son of Man is Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, and the King of all creation. He owns both the identity and the authority of the ancients of days, the eternally existing God. He is the One already declared in this Gospel to be the Creator of all things, the Giver of all life, and the Judge of all mankind. Jesus is the Son of Man on whom the Father, even God, has set His seal. That is what Jesus is claiming about Himself in this marvelous passage. He's claiming to be God. Now I'm not saying that His twelve, even His twelve disciples fully understood that claim at this point. What I'm saying is that's what He was claiming. That's what all who come to Him must and will accept. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will make it known to them. Many whom God draws to Jesus will struggle to see and to understand all that the Bible claims about His divine identity, His oneness with the Father. But none whom God the Father draws to Jesus will reject His divine identity. Does that make sense? This was a mostly Jewish audience. Jews have the very same problem with the biblical declarations of the deity of Jesus that Muslims have. They rightly insist that God, as God does, that there is but one God. That's true. Absolutely true. And they can't see a way to reconcile, many of them can't see a way to reconcile that declaration with the biblical New Testament declaration that Jesus is God. But that's who He is. That's who He claims to be. And that's who the apostles declared Him to be. That's who His Father bore witness that He is. That proclamation applies to Jews and Muslims and Gentiles and atheists and agnostics and humanists and Buddhists and Hindus and everybody else. And it's not just a New Testament declaration. We just looked at Daniel 7. Beloved, we who live to proclaim and exalt and honor Jesus must be faithful to say about Him the same things that the Father, the Spirit, and the Son say about Him and have said from the beginning. We must be as uncompromising as Jesus was in our declaration that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, The Son of Man is the great I Am. One sure way for men to miss life and stay dead is by acknowledging Jesus as a man but denying Him as God. We certainly don't need to help them do that. The final way that we'll consider this morning that men miss life and stay dead is by insisting on a bloodless salvation by rejecting the necessity of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When I was a freshman at Texas A&M, within the first few weeks of getting there, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. I was just one year old in the Lord. If my brother Gary was still here, he'd come up to me after the service and make a joke about A&M accepting one-year-olds. But anyway. Uh, I was... I was part of this deal where every year at the beginning of the the fall semester, A&M threw this big deal where they invited all the students to come to the student center and each student organization got a table. And you set your table up and you waited for people to come and talk to you so you could tell them about your organization. Well, our table was set up right beside the table for the Baha'i group. Baha'i is a very interesting mix they're, they have an Abrahamic, uh, monotheistic understanding, but they're at the same time they're mystical and, and they they allegorize everything. I asked them. I, I struck up a conversation with one of them, and I I learned a lot about what they believe, and they learned a lot about what I believed. One of the things that this guy said, he said that they believe that the story of the death and bloodshed of Jesus Christ. Was just an allegory, a biblical allegory for the dissemination of his teaching. His shed blood was his teaching distributed, disseminated among man. See, they eliminated the necessity of the blood. They created their own bloodless version of Christianity. That dodge, that in-run around the real gospel, goes right to the heart of what keeps many people from the real life that Jesus alone gives to men. Now, I know this is going to be a bit of a challenge for this mostly Gentile congregation in the 21st century in America, but I'm going to ask you to try for a few minutes to put yourselves in the sandals of this mostly Jewish audience that Jesus is addressing. The two most forceful dietary prohibitions under the law of Moses had to do with the two parts of every animal that belonged only to God. You know what those two parts were? The fat and the blood. The fat and the blood. Now the entrails that were covered with the fat, those were dedicated to God except with the burnt offering and all of that was put on the altar. But the fat and the blood the reason the fat was not to be eaten by men was because the fat of the animal was the best part of the animal. Now that flies in the face of our dietary sensibilities today, but that's what God said. In fact, the word for fat is used over and over, especially in certain chapters like Numbers 18, synonymously with the word best. You heard the—you ever heard, heard the phrase, he's living off the fat of the land? That's from Numbers 18. Throughout God's dealings with His people in the Old Testament, the first and the best were reserved only for Him as a recognition that all of it belonged to Him. The second part of every animal that belonged exclusively to God was the blood. No Israelite was ever to consume an animal with its blood still in it. He had to slay the animal and pour out the blood before he prepared it to eat or to sacrifice. But that prohibition existed very long before the law of Moses. Anybody tell me where it first shows up? Genesis 9. As Noah comes off the boat with his family, the ark, and God gives man, for the first time, gives man permission to eat animals as well as vegetation. And God says to him, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, comma, its blood. You shall not eat flesh with its life, its blood. And surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood will be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The blood of every man and every animal belonged entirely to God. Why was that? Because the blood is the life, and the life of every created being belongs to the source of life. The Word of God equates the blood with the life, and and he says, that's mine, not yours, it's mine. Much later, when God delivered the law to Israel through Moses, He again presented this very same critical connection between blood and life in uncompromising terms. Leviticus chapter 17, starting at verse 10, God says through Moses, "...and any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood..." I, God, will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. Listen to to this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement a couple of verses later god says you are not to eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is its blood whoever eats it shall be cut off you know what cut off mean meant killed go read exodus 31 law of the sabbath and you'll see that that's exactly what it says it's safe to say God was really, really serious about this prohibition against men taking into themselves the life of an animal by eating its blood because its blood is its life. So, knowing all that, now put yourselves in the sandals of these Jews who are listening to Jesus in John chapter 6 and listen to, think about how you would respond to these words. Truly, true. Verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and will, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he shall also live because of me. If you were a Jew in that crowd, what would you be thinking? Well, if if you were one of those who wouldn't recognize a metaphor, even if it bit you in the nose, you'd probably be thinking, what this man is telling us to do will surely bring down the full wrath of God on our heads if we do it. And he's talking about eating human flesh and human blood, not the blood of an animal. This guy's crazy. But beloved, what if eating the body and blood of Jesus was a very powerful picture, a metaphor that God gave to us to describe, to picture taking the life of Jesus into ourselves. Isn't that exactly how Jesus interprets his own words here? He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, not physical life that goes on a little longer. Eternal life. What if the connection between his blood and his life was the whole point of the prohibition that God gave to Noah and that he reiterated in the law against us taking the life's blood of an animal into ourselves? What could possibly make the blood of Jesus so radically different from the blood of an animal that God would forbid men to eat one but figuratively command men to eat the other? Well, we've established the inseparable connection that God himself makes over and over in the Old Testament between blood and life. But what about the inseparable connection between Jesus and life? John 1 verse 4 says, In Jesus, in him, was life. And the life was the light of men. In chapter 5, Jesus said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Beloved, if Jesus is the source of life and you have no life in yourselves, how do you get life? He has to give it to you. He has to give you His. And the blood is the life. It should have been a no-brainer for the Jews in this mostly Jewish crowd that Jesus wasn't talking here merely about physical death and physical life. He clarifies that nonetheless in verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life, real life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So how do you receive, how do men receive this life that Jesus is talking about? What do the words, eat my flesh and drink my blood, mean if they're not literal? I'm going to read portions of two verses in this passage, verse 47 and verse 54, that are exactly parallel. They're saying the very same thing in different words. See if you can match up the parts. Verse 47, he who believes has eternal life. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. See, we don't physically consume the body and blood of Jesus in order to take His life into ourselves. We receive His life by believing in Him. That's exactly what John said in his prologue to this gospel in John 1, verse 12. Very well-known verse. To as many as received Him... To them He gave the right to become children of God. That is, to those who believe in His name. How do you receive Him? By trusting Him. By trusting His character and His promise. That's how you receive Him. Eating His body and drinking His blood is a picture of trusting Him. Finding your life in Him. Taking His life into yourself. By the way, it's not wrong for someone in sharing their testimony to say, I received Jesus into my heart. We we wail on that a lot. That's what you do when you believe in him. That's what you do when you trust him. You take his life into yours, into you, because you don't have any. Now, I want you to really try to track with me on this. It's very, very important for us to understand that The way the Jews respond in this passage is completely uncharacteristic of their way of thinking. Completely. The writings of the rabbis, which were many during the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, are crammed full of allegory, of metaphor. To the Jewish mindset, virtually everything in the physical realm pointed to something more important in the spiritual realm. So for these Jews to take the words of Jesus in a hyper-literal manner actually took some serious effort. It wasn't the way they typically processed this kind of thing. You remember the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3? Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a scholar of the law. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How did Nicodemus respond? In a very un-Jewish fashion. He said, how can a man be born again when he, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus, answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. When Nicodemus continued to marvel anyway, Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus was nailing him because he was using a logic that made no sense to a Jew. Why would he do that? For a man like Nicodemus, steeped in his youth, steeped from his youth in the heavily metaphorical teaching of the rabbis to interpret Jesus' statement about being born again in such a ridiculously literal manner required some major mental gymnastics. See, it wasn't, it wasn't because Nicodemus normally thought in such earthbound terms that he missed Jesus' meaning. It was because his heart was desperately grasping for a way to avoid Jesus' meaning. To avoid the realization that he, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, was spiritually dead. That's the same dynamic that we find here in chapter 6. For this overwhelmingly Jewish audience to interpret what Jesus said about eating his body and drinking his blood in a hyperliteral manner was completely disingenuous. It was a dodge. It was not an honest misunderstanding. It was a very calculated evasive maneuver. Are you with me? So what were these men avoiding? They were avoiding with all their mental might any possibility that Jesus was right about their spiritual condition. That they were in reality spiritually dead and in desperate need of the real life that only He could give to them. See, in the final analysis, it is not a lack of evidence It is not a lack of the compelling witness by the Father to His Son. It's not because the true gospel is unclear that people turn away from Jesus. It's a lack of humility. It's the lack of humility that comes with spiritual blindness and deadness. It's the pride that says, why would I need to take your life into myself when I've got my own? Why would I need your righteousness when I've got my own? Thanks, but I've got this covered. Lost people play all kinds of mind games to avoid facing up to the simple fact that they don't have it covered. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are all lost and dead forever. The curse of death is both physical and spiritual. Our bodies are doomed to die at the end of this mortal life, and our souls are doomed to die forever. And both of those are true because of the same curse. And that curse is true because of the same sinful rebellion against God. Jesus had to shed His literal blood to redeem us from that curse that affects everything. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The shedding of what blood? Not the blood of animals. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The one and only payment that will ever suffice To pay the infinite debt that we owe to God because of our sin is the blood of the one perfect, sinless Son of Man, Jesus Christ. His pure and undefiled life is the ransom that God has provided to give His life to the dead. There is no other. See, if every, if every human being is actually spiritually dead and doomed to be physically dead as well, then everything in that this amazing passage says, everything Jesus says, makes perfect sense. And it follows flawlessly from everything that God has said about blood and life in the whole Old Testament. Let me read Leviticus 17.11 again. Listen to it carefully. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In the Hebrew, the word I is emphatic both by position and repetition. God is saying, let's get this clear. I, even I, have given this blood to you on the altar to make atonement. For your lives. You haven't given anything to me. What blood? Not the blood of an animal that never even had spiritual life. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Every single sacrifice of atonement in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing. It was a picture of the blood that God the Father has given to the world to atone for the sins of mankind. There's only one atoning sacrifice. Only one. Israel thought they were giving something to God when they offered up those animals. <laughs> but the life of those animals that they poured out with the with the blood in the form of the blood in front of the altar, that life didn't belong to them. It came from God and it belonged to God. It was already his. How do you think your mortgage banker would respond if you walked into his office and told him you were ready to pay off your mortgage and then you asked him to get out his checkbook so you could write the check to pay it off? You can't pay a debt with what already belongs to your creditor. But he can. Those animal sacrifices under the law of Moses were never capable of paying the debt of any man's sin. They were just temporary, imperfect pictures of one perfect atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice of God's own Son. His blood, His life, poured out at the cross to pay the debt that we could never pay. Unless the source of life gives us His life, we have no life in ourselves. We take His life into ourselves by faith by trusting only Him to be our life. Men have created one religion after another that's founded on the catastrophically false idea that we have something to give God. But we're dead until He makes us alive. We've got nothing to offer Him. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why His blood had to be shed A bloodless Christianity is a lifeless Christianity. It's a religion without redemption from the curse of death that covers all mankind like a veil. It's not Christianity at all, and it can't save anybody. For unbelievers, the meaning should be clear. If you do not take His life into yourself by trusting only in Him, you have no life in yourself. Not now not ever, you are in death already, you are condemned, and you will remain condemned until and unless you take his life into yourself. For us as believers, what does this mean? At the heart of it, it means the exact same thing that it does for unbelievers. If we do not take his life into ourselves, we don't have any. In one regard, we who are the redeemed of God already received the life of Jesus once and for all when God brought us to faith in His Son. But it's equally true that we must take His life into ourselves daily and moment by moment. We dine on His every word and we are revived daily by His life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Bob said in our Wednesday discussion, and I believe he's spot on, that baptism and communion, when you look at the two, represent both of these facets of the life of Jesus taken in to the believer. Baptism, which is done once in the life of the believer, pictures the already accomplished crossing over from death into life, from unclean and unrighteous in the eyes of God to forever clean, And justified in the eyes of God, buried with Christ in the likeness of His death, raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection to newness of life. That's done for us who have put our faith in Jesus as our Savior. Communion, on the other hand, is repeated every time we gather on Sundays. There's reason to believe that the church did it every time they gathered for any meal. The early church. It pictures the continual taking into ourselves of the life of Jesus, dining on Him. I think it's really cool that in Revelation 22, the tree of life in the new Jerusalem will continue to yield its fruit monthly. You ever think about that? I believe that even in eternity, beloved, when we dwell in the very presence of our Savior and Master, the only life we will ever have is His life taken into ourselves. And that'll be something that we do all the time. Let's pray. Dear Father, we confess that we, we have no life in ourselves. With hearts overflowing with gratitude to you, we repeat the words of the Apostle Paul. We say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Thank you, dear Father, for making His life our life forever. Make us to live only
0: for Him. We ask this in His precious name. Amen.